Well, friends, it has been a great morning together. Let's continue that and open your Bibles. We are going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are getting ready to make our way through that book for the next 10 weeks together. And let me just tell you, as a pastor, making my way through a book of the Bible, that's one of my favorite things to do because week in and week out, it's not my agenda. It's the agenda that God wants to set for us. We just set up the next section or the next chapter and we make our way through that. And obviously, there's something very wholesome about that. There's something very good about that because, well, God speaks to us. We believe this is God's word. It's his love letter to us. This is the scriptures that explain to us what God is like and what it means to live a life of faith, of honoring him with our whole lives. And this book is one that continues to speak to us in that way. By that, I mean that we have a very high view of the scriptures at CCF. A high view, I mean that we believe this is a true book. We believe that, actually, there's not good ideas, but this is something that God is saying, I want this for you because this is honoring to me and it's good for you. There's benefit to us as we are listening to the Word of God and applying it to our lives. Can I just tell you that a higher view of the Bible is eroding quickly in our country? There was recently a study done by Lifeway, and I have the results of that here. They ask quote-unquote evangelicals, the question, the Bible, it was a true-false question, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And to, not, not a big surprise for us, 53% of Americans agreed with that statement. I guarantee you in Seattle that number is much higher. You all know that anecdotally with me, right? But that's probably not the disturbing number. The disturbing number is the one that's in red to the left, And 26 of individuals that report themselves as evangelicals would agree with that statement that the Bible's really just myths and that it's not really true. And that's disturbing. In fact, look look at the difference between the year 2020 and the year 2022. 15% would agree with that statement as evangelicals in 2020, up 11%. I don't know what happened in COVID, but somehow it shot a hole in the, the issue of us and our belief as Christians of the scriptures. I'm hoping that turns around and that has a U-turn as it were because, again, it's so important. We give up so much. If we don't hold this as sacred and true, we give up really the foundation of our faith, the foundation that Jesus really lived as a real human being. He died and he rose again. If you give that up, then you're giving up so much of what we consider actually as sacred as important our faith. We don't gather here today for a social party. That's not why we're here. We gather here because God has asked us to be here. God has brought together his family. He said there's pleasing to him when we are come together for worship and we come to listen to his word. And so there's something of honor to God of why we gather week in and week out. And we believe that God is, continues to speak from generation to generation. Well, with all that in mind, I'm excited to really jump into the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I've given the book the title or the sermon series the title this time around flourishing. Nick kind of hinted at that with communion this morning, thinking of a time in your life when you were flourishing, where the relationships around you were healthy and good, and maybe you felt especially vibrant. That's what that word really means. It means healthy, it means alive. When something's flourishing, then something's alive to its fullest extent. And here's what Paul says the church in Thessalonica was one that was flourishing. Let me, let me give you the one place where he even says that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. I've got that on the board behind me. 
He says, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is, there it is, flourishing and your love for one another is growing. And so he says, you, you church in Thessalonica, you're a flourishing church. Everything is going really well for you. You're rigorous, you're healthy, good things are occurring. And perhaps the best and first definition we have of something that is flourishing is the Garden of Eden. If you think about the Garden of Eden, you think about things that are in the Garden of Eden that are, are, are growing, they're flourishing, there's rivers there, there's plant life there, there's trees that keep on just blooming throughout all the seasons there. You think about this and painter, American painter Erastus Salisbury Field, I looked up this painting this week and I loved it so much because it was painted in 1860, the year before the Civil War in America. And I want you to look at the way that he captures this idea of everything that's healthy and vibrant. Look at, look at the rivers that are winding their way through the valley areas and the trees that are lush and the fruit that's just being picked so easily. Look at the animal life that seems so healthy and vibrant and real. I'll, I'll notice that a lot of pears there. That's some, some good imagery too. And so again, he's, he's capturing us for this idea of what it means to flourish. And that's what Paul says is happening in this church in Thessalonica. They are a flourishing church. And the reason that they're flourishing might be a great surprise to you. Before I give you some great ways that they're flourishing, let me ask you the question. If you said that there was a church that was flourishing, what would you say makes a church flourish? Or what's the evidence that a church is flourishing? Some of you might say, well, it's a number of people attending. If a church is reading well attended, it's probably a flourishing church. Maybe they've just got a pastor that can really preach the word. It's a flourishing church. Maybe you're saying it's the number of ministries that they have. Lots of ministries that are both set inside the church and outside the church. Lots of ministries determine a, you know, a great flourishing church. Maybe it's great facilities. If you've got great facilities, you're a flourishing church. Believe me, Denise and I were in Spain this summer, saw a lot of churches that if the definition of flourishing is they have beautiful buildings, boy, they would pass muster. Here's what I'm here to tell you. If those are your definitions of flourishing, the church in Thessalonica was a failure because it didn't have any of those things that were going on. The church in Thessalonica was this this little fledgling church that was just making its way, and we're going to learn part of their story here today. And we have the privilege of actually hearing from God through Paul over the next 10 weeks of what it means to have a flourishing church. That's what we're going to continually tap back on is, wow, this is another way this church was flourishing. Let me just remind you a little bit about where this church is located and a little bit about its history. The church is in a little city called, or a bigger city for the ancient world, Thessalonica, and I've got a map here of Paul's missionary journey. It's the second missionary journey of Paul. And you'll notice that he takes a counterclockwise route around the then kind of ancient world. So he leaves from Antioch and makes his way across towards the Galatian region all the way to the area of Macedonia where I've got that red arrow on Thessalonica. And then down by boat making his way back to Jerusalem and then return to the church that sent him in Antioch. Uh, capital city of Macedonia was Thessalonica. So it was a very important city. It was a central city. It was, uh, again, a very progressive city for its day. It was a hub of, of, of economic and government and social and religious influence for the entire city or the entire region. And so, again, this city was, you'd say, happening. 
Paul rolls into this city, and he's got with him Silvanus, or Silas, as he's also known, and Timothy. Those are his companions that he goes into the city with. And he does something that he does regularly. He goes immediately to the synagogue. And he, he says, boy, these are the people, again, that are tailor-made to be able to receive the message about Jesus because they have all of this history of God's work. And so they're going to recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah. So he goes to the synagogue, preaches three weeks, and he also is preaching throughout the city. And that's evident because Acts chapter 17 says that there's a number of Greeks that come to be followers of Jesus, as well as some that are in the synagogue. But... There's a number in the synagogue that don't like what he's saying and are against him, and they start stirring up the city against him. They make their way to the house of one of the brand new converts. Imagine being a brand new convert, and the officials come to your house to arrest you and to accost those that are living in your home. That's Jason. And in Acts 17, Jason is jailed. There's just this giant turmoil within the city. Some people post bail so with money so that he can get out of jail. And so this is all happening at just the formation of the church. It gets so heated that Paul says, you know, I've just got to exit this spot and let the church kind of be the church and pick up the pieces. So he moves on, but he's wondering, what's happening? And so he sends Timothy, his young protege, back to Thessalonica in order to figure out what's going on in the city. And then Timothy comes back, reports that to Paul, and then Paul says, all right, with that information... The information of me being with you, the information of what Timothy just told me, I'm now writing this letter to you. And so this is the letter that Paul's writing after all that experience and out of all that persecution and turmoil that the church is facing. And so we're picking up today in chapter 1, and we're following along with Paul as he writes this letter to this, this church, this church that's flourishing in the ancient world Here's what he writes, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men uh, we proved to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Lord, we are praying right now that this book would take deep root in the lives of the people that call CCF their home church. Would you just disrupt any soil that's in need of being killed up and create fertileness on the inside of us because we wish to be a flourishing people and a flourishing church. So teach us what that means today. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. In the passage today, 
Paul starts off with a great sense of encouragement. He is saying to this young church, way to go, thumbs up, boy!" And he's just, he's just pouring out all of the great ways that this church is just making it in the midst of such great adversity. Many of you know that on Friday, something big happened in Seattle. The Mariners made their way to the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. And I've got a picture of the celebration of all the players after, well, I mean, it was just an iconic way too. Cal Raleigh. On a 3-2 pitch, ninth inning, I think two outs, boom, he makes his home run to right field, and that seals the way into the playoffs. And all the players are out on the field, and they are just celebrating to the hilt. All the fans I've heard stayed around for the better part of an hour or more, just so they could kind of take in the moment. The whole town is, you know, just rejoicing all week long because finally the, the spell's been broken and we've made our way to the playoffs. I, it doesn't, I guess, make much difference if we even win a game in the playoffs. We've made it. Or that, maybe that's not true. We want to win a few games too, but. Everybody is giving a thumbs up to the Mariners right now, to the coaching staff, to the players, the cardiac kids all, all season long, but they've made their way. And it's a giant thumbs up. I want you to capture that moment that you see, that exuberance, that excitement. And that's the way that Paul is feeling right now about this young church in Thessalonica. They're flourishing. And Paul says that he, he, he's so excited about them that he says, I want you to know something. I want you to know that I'm continually mentioning you in my prayers and that I am remembering you. I'm continually remembering you in my prayers and I am constantly remembering who you are, young church. Imagine what that feels like for this young church to say, we're constantly being remembered. We have a faith that's iconic in our region, and it's being recognized. And even by Paul himself, he's saying, I remember you. And so the passage today is about how the young church in Thessalonica had a memorable faith. What were they doing? What were they practicing that was giving them a memorable faith? And how is it that we can have a memorable faith that's what the emphasis is going to be on today. That's the theme of this passage today is how to have a memorable faith. And it starts off in a bit of a strange area because number one, Paul says, I am, you, you're so memorable to me because God chose you. And so the very first thing about their faith is something that they didn't even do themselves. It's a surprise because it was something done to them rather than something that they did. He says, God has chosen you. And this is a common doctrine known as election. It means that God has come to an individual or a group of individuals and he set them aside for a special purpose or a special destiny. It's usually done in spite of any character or any righteousness that's been displayed by any of the recipients. It's just God saying, I'm showing up and I'm doing something with you right now. Let me give you two classic examples of individuals who were elected by God, had nothing to do with themselves beforehand. One is Abraham. He's perhaps our first example and maybe our best. Abraham has no idea that he's going to become the father of a, the great nation of Israelites. He has no idea. He has no idea of the concept of what that would even mean. And God says, you, Abraham, you're my guy. You're the material I'm going to begin with, and Abraham's chosen. Moses. Moses has no indication that he is going to be the guy that's going to lead the uh, Israelites out of the Egyptian slavery. 
And God shows up when he's all the way out in Midian, the, the backwater, the sticks, the wilderness, and says, you're the guy. Get back in here. We're going to do this, and we're going to do it through you. God chooses Moses. Paul says, I'm excited about you, and you have a memorable faith because God chose you. Let me give you an example here from the great theologian, one that I love to read regularly, A.W. Tozer, because A.W. Tozer attempts to reconcile this idea of the sovereignty of God with man's free will. And those are what's always, we're, we're, we're trying to try to say, which is it? We choose God or God chooses us? How does that work? And A.W. Tozer gives this example. He says, an ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined with all of the proper authorities, and nothing can change that. This is at least a faint picture of the sovereignty, he says, of God. On board the liner are scores of passengers. They're not in chains. Neither are their activities determined by any kind of decree. He says they have the completely free ability and will to eat, sleep, play, lounge. They can go sun on the deck. They can read. They can talk. They can do totally as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying steadily onward toward its predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they do not contradict. And so it is, I believe, that man's freedom and the sovereignty of God, how they work together. The mighty liner of God's sovereignty, sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of all of history. And so again, there's not saying that we don't have some level of freedom to respond and obey God, but there is this idea, again, that God is coming into lives, He's moving into lives, and he's depositing something on the inside of us that's quickening us, making us alive. And you can't have a faith that's memorable unless you first start with God starting to deposit something on the inside of you and you responding to that. We need the seed of God, as it were, to be coming into our souls, which are willing, our hearts are willing, are open for God to come and do that. And that's what God is doing, and that's what Paul says is the important first step for the church in Thessalonica. Note, however, what Paul says, though, it's not as if this happened and I couldn't see it. He says, you know, we came and we came not with just words, but we came with the Spirit's power. And we could notice the Spirit's power on you. Paul knew he had no ability to change anybody, but God did. And as he came and he preached the word, he watched that take root in their hearts. He watched them receive the word with such deep conviction. And he says, I knew, I just knew at that moment that God was working on you. And if you've ever been around somebody that is a brand new Christian, you can honestly see that so many times. There's such a quickening on the inside of them that is not of human origin. There's just something happening that's transpiring that is from above. And that's what Jesus even tells Nicodemus. You have to be born from above. And so this idea of God's choice coming upon an individual and alive, making them alive is where Paul begins with a memorable faith. All right, he moves on from there. And next Paul says that a memorable faith uh, has two things that they were, were practicing and modeling. They were imitators and they were models. And let me explain what I mean here. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you, that you received with much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He says, You became imitators of us, and you became imitators of God. As he worked in your lives, you began to imitate what you saw inside of us. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word imitate or imitation, but the thought that comes to my mind as I think about imitation is a commercial from years ago. 
And there is this elderly woman that is standing in a lush garden. She has on a white gown, and she has on a crown that is kind of a floral crown. And somebody steps up, or she, she, she takes a bite of a piece of bread that obviously has some butter on it. She takes a bite, and uh, she, she finds out it's not butter, it's margarine. And if some of you are old enough, I'm dating myself tremendously right now, but she says, as she discovers that it's margarine, not butter, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. You remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that with me. Make me feel at home here. All right, all right. There's obviously an age discrepancy on that one. I get it. But she says it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. And then all of a sudden there's a thunder and, and, and you know, that hits the, 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 the whole forest as a result of that. So here's what she's saying. You know, they were saying this margarine is as good as butter, but she's saying, hey, I want the real thing. And honestly, there are all kinds of things that are imitated. We think of uh, imitation things that are like diamonds or butter, as it were, designer fragrances. And many times we'd say, I don't want the imitation, I want the original. I, I'm in that category. I oftentimes, if I can get the original, just give me the, give me the one that's, that's really the real thing, because that's what I really want. Here's what I want you to hear today. There's an important aspect of imitation. And unless we have imitation, we actually would never learn how to speak or how to walk. <laughs> we would learn no table manners, that's for sure. I mean, you know, think about that. You, you have to imitate what you see somebody else do. And human development relies upon imitation. If you don't have imitation, you really don't have the progress of society. And again, in the ancient world, that was especially true. You followed around a teacher and you just did what he did. That was the, the key way of modeling becoming a valuable person to society is that it was modeled and you repeated that. And he is saying to them, there's something really valuable about, about your faith. There's something memorable about your faith. You quickly became imitators of us. You took on the very ways that we went about life and you quickly adopted that and you began to imitate the way that we showed life to you. And Paul says that is to be greatly commended. Well, that's not the only thing that happens with them. They're not just imitators. They are also models. And a model in the idea of the Greek here is something that's used to create things in the very same shape or the similar shape as what the original was. Let me give you a couple ideas here. You have a brick mold. And the brick mold is you spat, uh, pack the, the dirt inside of it or the clay inside of it. And then you pop that out, dry it. And that becomes a brick, and it becomes the model for the next brick. Let me give you a more modern-day example. We're probably not brick makers here, but maybe we like to make jello. I've got a picture here of a jello mold. And so if you put your jello in, you pour it in there, multi-layered, I like that one, and then you pop it over, you've made a mold of the jello. And so again, that is kind of a modern-day example of becoming this kind of model. Paul says, you became an example to the believers in all of Macedonia and Achaia. That word example is also translated at times model. And in spite of the disadvantages of being a persecuted church, they gave evidence continually of this genuine and recognizable 
Christian character that was coming forth from them. And that's why Paul says, he says, I saw within you your works produced by faith, your labor produced or prompted by love, and your steadfastness inspired by hope. And so they were outstanding models of character even amidst this great suffering and persecution that they faced. Friends, let me ask you this. Who is your model? If you had to choose a model today, who would you choose as the model that you are saying, I would love to have a life that looks like them? Askmen.com is the largest lifestyle website in the world and uh, for men. And uh, they surveyed 2,000 men and asked them, who do you consider your role model? I was very surprised with the results of this. Here it is. Actors and entertainers, by the way, they just let them freeform their answer, and then they put them into four categories. Actors and entertainers, 8%. Athletes, 24%. I'm my own role model. <laughs> narcissist, narcissist. I'm my own role model, 31%. And entrepreneurs, 35%. So they're saying, number one, I would love to uh, follow somebody that's kind of in the Bezos or uh, Elon Musk category that just is the entrepreneur that takes over and kind of does the thing right. Or maybe I want an athlete that's, you know, on the top of his game. Or, hey, maybe just look at myself in the mirror. That's good enough. Man, can I remind you of something? Uh, you, you know, that, that's not the kind of role model you need. For many of you today, younger men especially, your role model may actually be in this room right now. There's men in this room that have raised a family, stayed faithful to their wife, punched out a daily job, and done that all with a desire to continue to serve the Lord, and they have done that. You may need to look. Yeah, I, I, I give that a round of applause too. That is worthy of that. And that is why we want to disciple younger men. And we want to help you. We want to show you what it looks like to lead a life of faith. And we want you to become models of that to others. We want that for women. That's why older women are mentoring and discipling younger women. is because that's important. That's one of the ways that you have a faith that's worth remembering is that you're transmitting something. You're, you're, you're seeing something that happens in the lives of individuals that can be produced cheaply. And it's not produced by going to a sporting event or going to a movie. It's produced life on life. And Paul says, I saw that within you. You became imitators of, of us. You became models of us. All right. There's one other way I want you to see that their, their faith was memorable. Here it is. Their faith was memorable because their faith rang out. Uh, ESV says that their faith sounded forth, but their faith rang out. And this has to do with the way that they began to interact with the world around them. And Paul says that their, their faith rang out, not only in their own city, but indeed throughout the whole region. And he says, everywhere. We didn't need to say anything to anybody about you because you became so well known for being so committed to our Lord. They were not ashamed. Even though they were persecuted, they were not ashamed. They identified as Christians very rapidly and that didn't deter them that they were perhaps, uh, you know, they, they were threatened. They were walking billboards. And that is an advertisement of the way that God is working in their lives. And they were just transmitting that to everybody around them. All right, let me talk to you a little bit about how I think we're practicing that. And for those of you who weren't here last week about the ways that we can continue to practice that, 
Last week, I had you do something because we are seeking to let our faith ring out in our area. And we're doing that by identifying five individuals that God has already brought into your life that you say, I would love to see those individuals come to know our Lord. I'd love for nothing more, at least for me, to have a role in loving them, in serving them, of asking questions with them, of spending time with them. And so last week, I had you take uh, one of these, and if you didn't do this, these are available to you at the end of the service. You took one of these, and you identified on your card, the card says, my friends, and you identified your five friends. If you have that card, I'm hoping you're putting it somewhere prominent. Maybe you're putting it near your desk at work, or you're putting it on the mirror at home, or you're putting it near your, where you might have a quiet time. So you're, you're keeping that handy, because we're going to use that many times throughout this year. So you're keeping that, and then we gave you ping pong balls that you could write the name on, and that is a visual reminder to all of us of the collection of all of the friends that we have that we're praying for, and that we're asking God, would you, would you show up in those individuals' lives? I notice you're looking at that really strangely because there's a couple of them there that are a little different. I told you I have some pickleball friends, so I put pickleballs in there with some of my friends on it. So, you know, just to change it up a little bit. And again, that just ended up being a great spot for me to, uh, to make some friends. Our faith is ringing out in our area because we believe God's worth God's worth serving, and the people around us need to hear about him. And so we're identifying those people, we're praying for those people, and we're figuring out ways for God to work in the midst of those natural relationships that are already with us. All right. Paul's proud of this little persecuted church. They have faith that's memorable. He's chosen, God says, I'm, uh, you're a memorable faith because God's chosen you. You became imitators and models of us, and your faith is ringing out. And so I want to say to you, I think there have been times, in fact, many times at our church in which those things have been happening. We've noticed or we've recognized God's on the move and he's choosing individuals to follow him for the first time or maybe individuals to come back to him. We've noticed that. We've noticed that, again, there are individuals that are becoming models and imitators of him and are demonstrating that by giving that to somebody else. And there's times in which our faith is wrung out in the whole area. You know, maybe we wouldn't say Seattle knows us, but, you know, again, Edmonds is beginning to know us, and that's a good thing. And I want to celebrate that with you of the times where God has shown up and done that with us. And we're having a special celebration that is going to be on November 6th of this year, and we're going to be celebrating 40 years as a church. 40 years. Can I just tell you that there was just a small group of people that got together on Easter morning, 1982, and they started this church. We are going to have that founding pastor, Ralph Fry and Leanne, with us on November 6th. They're going to be right here on the stage. We're going to have Dave Swinson and his wife, Jill. We're going to have Dave and Shelley Bartels here, my wife and me. We're going to have individuals that have been the legacy of at least the senior pastors in our church during that era. We're going to have a celebration across the street that's going to be a potluck. And uh, if Eric were up here, he'd be reminding you, we're going to do something very special that day. We're going to smoke meat. And so again, we're asking those of you who smoke meat to help participate that day because it's going to be a gigantic feast. See Pastor Eric if you are willing to smoke some meat for us that day. There's going to be some uh, things that you bring that are obviously, it's a potluck, so you're going to do that. And we're going to have a way to capture some special memories from that day. Beyond smoking some meat, there's one other way you can help. 
And there is a form on the website. And if you'll give me that form, oh, it's a little hazy, but all right, whatever. Um, there's a form on the website. You're going to receive an email today, and it's going to direct you to that form. Here's what we would like for you to do. We would like for you to think back on your time here and think of a time that's really memorable for you. It's like, wow, that was just a time that was just awesome. That was a time in which God showed up. That was a time in which, I, that's just a pinch me moment. I love that. And would you write that out? There's a way for you to either upload a Word document to our website or just type it into a field there. And if you have any photographs that are from the past, maybe it was a missions trip, maybe it was a special event. If you've got any photographs from the past, then go ahead and send those to us also. Here's what we're going to do. On the day of the celebration of 40th, November 6th, we're going to have a board or a couple boards over at the ministry center, and we're going to put your memories onto that board along with your pictures. And we are just going to remember, man, four decades that God has been working with us, and that is a great thing, and we give him praise and honor for that. So we need to be uh, remembering that God is good to us, and, and he's given a memorable faith to us many times throughout our, us, our history and our era. And a memorable church is not just for the first century, it's for today. And it's for CCF, and we intend to continue down the path of honoring God by saying, we're following you, and we wish to be a memorable, memorable church for your honor. Father, we thank you again for today. We thank you for 40 years as a church that we begin to celebrate now. And we look forward to a month from now when we're going to really just lean in heavily to that idea. Thank you for my, my friends here, my brothers and sisters in Christ here, and the ways that they serve you so faithfully day in and day out. We're asking us to, that you would have us excel still more in our faith of, uh, and loyalty and and, and just our, our, our desire to be all in with you. Thank you again for, Lord, this book of First Thessalonians. Continue to open our eyes to all of its truth as we make our way together through it. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people again said.